Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman, and in this week's episode, we're discussing botanical frauds and fake news. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday night between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You don't need to know anything about the wildflowers you are posting. You just need to find some, photograph them and then upload them to our Facebook group or post on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Wildflower Hour. Starting this week, we are also introducing a new way of helping people work out what the mystery flower they found actually is. You can keep posting using the Wildflower Hour hashtag, but do also add a new hashtag, which is WFHID. This means we'll be able to get back to you more quickly on what you found. And we're also well into the flowering season now, which means our orchids feed is back up and running. You can just go to wildflowerhour.co.uk forward slash orchids to see the latest posts on native orchids from around Britain and Ireland. There are 52 different species. It's a very pretty feed, but you might also be able to get some tips on where to go looking for these fascinating plants yourself. And we have a new challenge for this week to find bluebells, which sounds easy, right? Wrong. The English bluebell that turns our woods into a beautiful mist at this time of year isn't the only bluebell that grows in Britain. There's also the Spanish bluebell, which was introduced into this country and is now spreading from gardens, and a hybrid between the two of them. A number of conservation organisations are worried that this hybrid in particular is replacing the native bluebell in wild woodlands. But Professor Mick Crawley isn't so sure. I spoke to him about these two plants and whether we should worry about them. What's so special about the English bluebell, Mick? It's one of the very few native British wildflowers that continental botanists are really envious of. That spectacle of, a, of an oak ash woodland carpeted by solid blue is something they would simply never see. They don't have any wildflowers that do that amazingly impressive carpeting effect that Bluebell does. So why do we have that? Do we have sli- Obviously, we have slightly different weather conditions and habitats. That's right. The, the geography of Bluebell is extremely... Uh, western and northern in Britain. So it goes basically from Scotland down to Iberia in a very, very slim geographic range down the edge of France and, and into Iberia. So it is, it is very local. And it obviously likes our relatively mild winters and relatively wet summers. And tell us about what it, what it looks like. We all know what the sea of blue looks like as we see it from a car window exactly. or as we go for a walk. But close up, what's the individual plant like? I wonder how many of your... Um, listeners are familiar with the works of Edward Lear, because our wild bluebell is exactly like what he called many people are upside down here. <laughs> That's to say, the flowers are hanging and are hanging off one side of the inflorescence. So it's, it's a very distinctive shape of, of, of an inflorescence. And the individual flowers themselves have parallel sides. They're essentially cylindrical. And if you turn them up and look inside, you'll see that the pollen bearing, such as the anthers, are creamy white. So th- those are the key features. Flowers on one side, essentially parallel-sided, white anthers. That's the native bluebell. And how successful is our bluebell at the moment? Is it suffering from destruction of woodlands or from people picking it too much? The, the only threats really are habitat destruction. There was a period when uh, owners of woodlands were digging up bluebell bulbs and selling them. Now that is now illegal. So Digging up the bulbs uh, is, is a criminal offence now. A fine of £5,000 per bulb is the maximum. Now, a, a number of people think because it's protected, that means you can't pick it. But that's not true. 
you, you can pick bluebells. There's no legislation against picking wildflowers in Britain, and except for a very small number of specially protected orchids, for example. So kids collecting bluebells in the woods is no problem at all. The threat is um, urban expansion, destroying woodlands. Um, HS2, the high-speed rail line, is going to destroy huge uh, areas of bluebell in, in woodlands because it's uh, less expensive to go through a woodland than it is to go through an existing suburb and so on. But the, there's no real ecological threat to it other than habitat destruction because the trade in bulbs has now been stopped. But there is, uh, among lots of botanists, a belief that there is a threat to the English bluebell from a Spanish invader. I've heard that story myself, yes. So in gardens, in Victorian times, the very big bluebell, the Spanish bluebell, uh, Hyacinthoides hispanica, uh, became very popular. And as soon as it became popular, people realized that it hybridized very readily with our wild English bluebell. And in fact, there is a school of um, botanical opinion that says that really these aren't two separate species at all. They're just two ends of one very gradual continuum. But it's very easy to tell Spanish bluebell from English bluebell because the flowers are bell-shaped rather than parallel-sided. They're not as dark blue. And if you turn them upside down and look inside, you'll see the pollen, the anthers, are blue rather than cream-colored. The other thing is that when the um, flowers of Spanish bluebell are mature, the flower stalks point upwards, whereas with our native bluebell, the flowers always point downwards, even in maturity. It's also, it's a much, much bigger plant. The leaves are more than twice as wide as a typical bluebell. So when they're not in flower, it's leaf width that you'd use to tell them apart. And how do you tell apart the hybrid from these two different species? Well, the hybrid is a fertile plant. So it's, it's not like a typical hybrid, which is, which is sterile. So the hybrid can, can breed true from seed. So in fact, the hybrid is extremely successful. And if you look in most people's gardens and you see bluebells growing in an obviously cultivated situation, they're almost always the hybrid, Hyacinthoides masatiana. It's, it's, it's a hundred times commoner than, than Spanish bluebell, even though a lot of gardeners will call it that. And the, the hybrid is just intermediate in all its characters. So it's got wider leaves than our native bluebell, but narrower leaves than Hyacinthoides hispanica. The anthers are blue like they are in the Spanish parent, and the flowers are bell-shaped rather than parallel-sided. So it's relatively easy to know that you're not looking at an English bluebell. It's trickier sometimes to know the hybrid from Hispanica. And how worried are you about the spread of the Spanish bluebell and the spread of the hybrid? I think this is a wonderful example, a botanical example of fake news. So a number of years ago, there were horror stories in the botanical press about how the English bluebell was jeopardized by the, um, the spread of the hybrid, in particular, that hybridization was going to cause the demise of the native bluebell. It's simply not true. There's, there's no evidence at all that native bluebell populations are suffering at all from hybridization. What's happened is that um, botanical recorders have noticed the appearance of the hybrid outside of gardens. This is largely as a result of horticultural fly tipping. Now, a certain amount of horticultural fly tipping happens on the edge of woodlands. 
So when botanical recorders go to a woodland, they might find in that woodland native English bluebells living in the middle of the wood and alien thrown out hybrid bluebells in the fly tipping by the lay-by, by the road. But both of those go down as a record in that same wood, you see. And without any estimate of abundance, it looks as if the native bluebell and the introduced hybrid are, are equally abundant. But it's simply not true. There's, there's no evidence at all for the spread into the middle of the woodland of plants that are of hybrid origin. And, and so it's, it's simply, it's, it's a non-story. So people are taking their plants that they don't want from their gardens and what they, instead of putting them in their compost heap, they go and take them to a local wood and just dump them. There's, there's a lot of horticultural fly tipping goes on. Um, and some people like me who enjoy recording alien plants actually love this because it's, it's really interesting to see what survives when people have thrown out of their gardens. But it, it, in terms of um, working out impacts on the native flora, it's rather unfortunate that our typical, our best databases record presence rather than abundance. So as soon as a hybrid bluebell that's recorded anywhere near a woodland, that looks as if it's a much bigger problem than it really is. Are there woodlands where it, the carpet of blue is actually entirely Spanish bluebell or entirely hybrid bluebell? No, absolutely not. All of the woodlands you see with the, with the carpet of bluebells, those are the native um, English one. The commonest that the hybrid gets is around the edges of people's gardens, where it's got out of the garden and over the fence. So there you might find, you might find you know, a few meters of length of a strip which is dominated by the hybrid. But it'll, it'll be on something like a railway embankment, and people have been throwing stuff over the garden fence and onto the railway. It won't be in a, a native woodland. So railway embankments sound like quite fun places to, uh, to, to look at as you travel along on your commute to spot the different... They're, they're uh... brilliant for botanising, especially if, the, if you commute in by southern, so the train is going very slowly. That was Professor Mick Crawley on the fake news around the Bluebell. Now, this is an area up for debate, and if you're a botanist or from an organisation that disagrees with Mick, I'd love to interview for this podcast too. Just get in touch through one of our social media channels or through the wildflowerhour.co.uk website. For this week's challenge, we want you to find bluebells and work out whether they are the English bluebell, the Spanish bluebell or the hybrid, and we'll have more ID tips on our website. Just post what you found using the hashtag bluebellchallenge. Now, one piece of fake news that the botanical world kept very quiet about for many years was an act of fraud that took place on a remote Scottish island. In his book, A Rum Affair, A True Story of Botanical Fraud, journalist Carl Sabber reveals a truly surprising secret about what took place on the island of rum in the 1940s. I wanted to know more about the dark secrets of the botany world, so spoke to Carl. So, Carl, tell me about the island of rum where is it and why is it so special well the island itself is off the uh, west coast of scotland and it's special or it's been special to botanists because there's been some query as to whether it escaped the ice age or not um and there was a long period when most of the mainland was covered with ice and rum was sort of on the fringes. And if the ice had caused a lot of plants to die during the period it was there, it was possible that some pre-ice age plants had survived on islands like rum. That's one point. The second point is that it was in the control of one particular family, the Bullers. And 
this meant that you know there were not lots of other people tramping around. And in the case of this particular story, one professor of botany had virtually got exclusive access to the island through the owners. And it was his activities there which either showed that plants had survived from before the Ice Age or didn't, if you happen to uh, understand the story that I tell in my book. So tell me about this story. Your book chronicles a great botanical fraud, basically. It does, although there are still one or two people who don't believe it was a fraud, although I don't see how they can ignore the evidence. Uh, What happened was... I came across in an obituary of a fellow of the college that I used to go to in Cambridge, uh, a one line which suggested he had investigated an alleged case of botanical fraud back in the 1940s and that this had been quashed uh, because the botanical community did not want to upset the person who was the focus of it. Now, that, as as a writer and journalist and documentary maker, that intrigued me One's always interested in what other people try to quash. So I managed to find this report, and it was pretty exhaustive. And it suggested quite strongly that a professor of botany in the University of Newcastle called John Heslock Harrison had been claiming to have discovered rare plants on the Isle of Rum in particular, which, in fact, he had not discovered at all, but had taken there himself and stuck them in the ground, which is a pretty shocking thing for for any botanist. But this man was a man of some reputation in the University of Newcastle. So rumors of this behavior had spread amongst the botanical community, many of whom couldn't believe the claims he made about these particular plants because they'd never seen them and they weren't even sure whether rum's plants could have survived at the Ice Age. So this particular chap, a young man called John Raven, uh, he was a classics don at uh, King's, but he was a passionate botanist. And so he set out to try and find evidence that, that this was what this professor had actually been doing. And so what did he find when he arrived on rum? Well, it's a difficult thing to, um, to find evidence for. I mean, it's no good him just saying, well, he couldn't find these plants and therefore the guy must have been making it up. However, also, the other thing to say is that uh, since rum was this botanist exclusive province, uh, he had to kind of invent reasons for going onto the island and uh, incurring this man's wrath. Uh, Anyway, he did go onto the island. Uh, pretending to be rather naive and just there for some camping and so on. And he went to the place that this man had suggested two two or three particular plants had, uh, he had discovered. And fortunately, he found from both looking at the plants, and they were there. What plants were they? They were One was called Carex bicolor, which is a sedge. And another, and there were another two or three. They were none of them kind of flamboyant uh, flowers or fruits or anything else. They were just, you, you know, you could mistake them for grasses. In fact, I was criticised uh, by botanists, one or two, in writing my book because I made a joke about the fact that I couldn't tell one grass from another. Well, tough, you know. I mean, I, nevertheless, the investigation was. Right. But um, so these were quite, you know, these were plants which would only be obvious to a botanist. And this one in particular, character bicolor, he found it 
poking up a few rather bedraggled plants. That was the first thing. They weren't kind of sturdy. They were the sort of thing you'd expect if a man had quickly popped them into the ground. Because I should say that at the time of this trip, Heslop Harrison himself was there with a group of students. And these were the occasions on which he liked to show them the rare plants. So it's the natural point at which he would have put them in the ground. Anyway, so that was the first thing, the state of the plants. The second thing was he found certain congeners, as they're called, which is plants you might expect to find associated with other plants in the roots of this carex bicolor, but they were not the sort of plants you, you would expect to find in that earth, in that island. And they were, however, they were the sort of thing you might have expected to find in a Newcastle garden if the guy had sort of grown them there. And uh, so that also suggested that he'd kind of uprooted these plants from somewhere else and put them in the ground. Uh, th there's much more to it than that, because uh, Raven, this, this effectively started him off, but he began to look, he began to find other evidence in some of the other plants. He found a wasp gall, I think it was, tucked away in, in the roots, which you wouldn't, again, you wouldn't expect to find in rum. And he, he pursued quite a lot of these leads with other botanists. He, he wanted them to check his evidence because it was shocking stuff he was finding. But anyway, the, to his satisfaction, he found evidence that these plants, A, were sort of not anywhere else on the island, and B, that they looked as if and behaved as if they had been imported. And it was that was the core of the report that he wrote. Although, in fact, as I describe in the book, it began to be clear that there are other aspects of nature that uh, Heslop Harrison also was accused of faking. There was a large blue butterfly he claimed to find on the Isle of Canna, which nobody else found. Then a man came out of the woodwork, so to speak, with a whole lot of stuff about beetles, which he believed that Heslop Harrison had sort of dropped into a lake in Scotland and then pretended to discover. So a whole lot of stuff began to unravel. Um, and it was at that point, I think, that the, the community that had asked Raven to do the work decided that it was also shocking that they couldn't possibly destroy this man's career. So that's extraordinary. So he, he was a fraud, yet the community around him decided what to protect him. Well, yes, but but one of the aspects of this sort of behaviour is well. The first thing to say he he what he did fraudulent things, but he was also a very good botanist. Now those sound contradictory, but <clears throat> it happens to be the case. There were some areas where he was a very good teacher. He had you know he'd made genuine discoveries in some places. Uh, the other thing to say is that, and I go into this in my book in a bit, uh, to do with the whole business of scientific fraud. Why should reputable scientists make up data? And I think in the case of Heslop Harrison, it was something he believed should be there and that he thought that if he'd looked harder, he would have found it. And because he believed so strongly in this theory of survival from before the Ice Age, he, he was sort of egging the pudding a bit in his own view by making the evidence for something which he knew was true anyway, in quotes. So in, in his view, and the view of other scientists, there are other cases I mentioned where people fake evidence, you sort of think, well, it's all for the good because it will help people believe this theory that I know, in quotes, to be true. 
So I, I, I think that, you know, that's a sort of underlying uh, rationale for doing this sort of thing. So was it covered up until his death? What, what, what then happened? Uh, it was covered up after his death. I mean, he, he um, and, the, and the sad thing is that he had a son who was also a very good botanist who became director of Kew Gardens. And he had a grandson who was also a botanist and whom I went to see to interview for my book. And I got in touch and I said, I'd like to come to talk to you about um, your grandfather's activities. And I didn't make it any more specific than that. And I went to see him at his university. And I said, um, and I started by talking about these uh, allegations of uh, fraudulent discoveries. And this nephew, sorry, this grandson did not know anything about it or profess not to. And I, I found this so difficult to believe because it was the talk of the botanical community and had been for decades. But I suppose, you know, if everybody else in your department knows from your name that, you know, your grandfather was the guy who did this, you're probably not going to raise it over a drink and say, oh, did he really do it? And what do you think about it? And so on. You might just leave the whole topic alone. So, in fact, I mean, it was never publicized until I wrote my book. And the interesting thing is that after I wrote my book, uh, some years afterwards, I got information from a former Natural History Museum uh, academic who said there was yet more evidence that I hadn't found from those archives because somebody had kept them in their drawer and they'd now gone into the archives. So I went back to that material and that's in the new edition of the book. So it seems to me it's something that everybody believed and it's something that there was a long correspondence about, all to do with not, you know, affecting this man's career, but accepting that the guy was clearly a fraud. Now, was he, he thought he was right, but just needed to produce the evidence to underline that, which was obviously fraudulent and wrong. But was he right in his theory about rum surviving the Ice Age? Well, as far as I know, I've not come across any evidence for that theory. There, you know, at the time, he was a sort of lone voice um, anyway in believing it. I mean, he wrote articles about it. But uh, most, most people believe that, you know, all the flora on, on, on places that were covered with ice um, is new. I mean, has, has come about since then. So uh, I don't think it's not one of those situations where um, it did him any good to come up with this evidence because, you know, it did not persuade people that his theory was right and in later evidence has not shown that it was right. And you obviously spent a lot of time researching his life and his work. What sort of picture of a person did you get of him? Did you did you find him sort of flawed but someone who you could have sympathy with or did you find him quite a, a repellent character? Well, I, I, repellent is going a bit too far, I think, but uh, he was certainly described as a dictator in his department in other words, he, he would brook no argument, and, and therefore you can see how that would allow these, um, these fraudulent data to continue. Um, he also coerced members of his family and in-laws who were working in the department, there was a certain degree of nepotism around the place, to both support him uh, in agreeing with his findings, and even occasionally to pretend to find them, or at least he put them in a position where they were the ones who found these things 
so that he could then say, well, it wasn't only me, you know, these other people did it. But, but of course, these other people were, one of them was his, his son-in-law, I think, and, uh, and even his, one of his other sons was sort of involved. So he, he kind of wasn't a really nice person, um, but, and, uh, you know, and he was flawed. And, and I suppose, uh, but at his heart, I think he was, one of the interesting things about him, he was self-taught. He was somebody who, kept talking about being a miner's son or an iron worker's son and you know he'd come all the way up to be a professor in a in an english university and uh this was so important to him that uh it kind of made him believe you know he was probably better than other professors who weren't the sons of miners and had pulled, or, you know hadn't hauled themselves up by their bootstraps to uh, positions of eminence and he became an frs as well which he clearly um you know made him he, he, all these things made him believe that he was uh, that he was infallible, and therefore probably that it wasn't doing any harm to fake these discoveries. How common do you think botanical fraud is today? Are there greater checks and balances against it, or is it still possible to, for instance, we we do sometimes read about orchids being planted by botanists that don't actually grow wild normally in this country. Do you think it's a, a reasonably widespread phenomenon? I'm not sure if it's specifically widespread in botany. I think any well, any scientist, well, scientists are human beings, and you know, they are all motivated by the kind of pressures to get, maybe even more so today, to get results, to write papers and so on. And uh, and the, the cases I mentioned in my book, I mean, they cover geology, they cover psychology, they cover immunology. Um, and I, I think, I, I wouldn't say that botany is any more prone to this kind of behavior than any other science. I think there is, I mean, there are websites now devoted to um, cancelling scientific papers whose data have, have been found to be dubious and so on. I think a lot of it goes on and I think a lot of it will go on as long as there are these sort of pressures on, on scientists in general. But I don't think it's necessarily any more prevalent in botany. That was Carl Saber on John Heslop Harrison's Botanical Fraud. And you can buy his book about this fascinating story called A Rum Affair. It's in paperback with an updated edition and there's a link on our website. And that's all for this week's episode. Do enjoy your wildflower hunting this week, whatever the weather. And thanks for listening.